0: People told me I would be in a wheelchair. They told me I would die. They told me, you know, all sorts of having to do with those diagnoses and with the things that happened to me, what my the expectations for me would be. And I made a choice a long time ago that I wasn't going to let those expectations define me and that I was not. And this was a very difficult one for a, a child who was raised in the conditions that I was raised in for that adult. To do, but I decided that I was not going to worry what about what other people thought, and I was raised to put that front and center, so that was a big swing that took a long time and those are the things I think that I can share that are are universal I've lived it you know I studied with Bessel Vander for a long uh, workshop the summer before I came here. And we spent a lot of time together. Um, he and his wife and I, and a friend of mine. And he said to me, because I was thinking about becoming a psychotherapist. He said, "Oh God, no! Please don't ever go to school because you have the understanding from the inside out."
1: Welcome to The Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed, gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Revelation Project Podcast. Coming home to yourself. What does that mean? Today, I'm with guest Krista Budalesi, who's an author, creative, and guide whose work focuses on supporting people as they become themselves fully and well. Her first book, Ubizo, A Story of Coming Home, tells her own story of finding her way from her upbringing in the United States to her current life in South Africa and the discoveries she's made along the way. She's now living happily ever after in a magic forest with her family, a host of birds, wildlife, and three somewhat domesticated dogs. So please join me in welcoming Krista. Hey, Krista. Hi, Monica. How are you? I'm doing well. And you're joining us from South Africa, where it is currently 6pm. Is that correct?
0: Mm-hmm. That's correct.
1: All right. Well, and we're here in the United States at 11am, just to give our listeners a little context. So you always talk about where you live as the magic forest. I'm so intrigued. Say more about that.
0: Well, we're in KwaZulu-Natal, which is the northeast uh, coast of South Africa, the province. And uh, the city closest to us is called Durban, which is sort of the third city not talked as much about as Joburg in Cape Town. I nearly didn't come here when I first visited, except that I knew some people here. And it's just, it's lovely. So we have the coast, we have dolphins, we have whales, we have sharks, we have all of that. And then the bush where I originally lived is about four hours north. But about a year uh, and a half ago, I moved inland towards the Drakensberg Mountains. So we're in an area called 1,000 Hills. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's just rolling hill after rolling hill. And we found a uh, 15 hectare indigenous forest. I'm told the last one of its kind in the area. And while I wasn't looking to move, or to buy anything beyond some pasture for goats and cows. It all magically worked out. And then, of course, you know, and I write about it in the preface of the book in the prologue, it is the place that I envisioned in an exercise ten years ago. So it all came to be. I thought originally it was Canada, but I was wrong. yeah. Now, this is not as African a landscape as the bush.
1: It's a fascinating story. And for our listeners, you grew up in the United States, correct? So I would love it if you wouldn't mind also giving our listeners more background on how this great transition came to be and what now has you in the in the magic forest.
0: Well, I not only grew up in the States, I grew up in the Northeast coast as well, but of the United States. So the joke here is that I just landed in the wrong country, right place. I spent most of my, spent a little bit of time, well, about six or seven years in the South, just after high school. And then I spent uh, most of my adult life in Chicago. And then the last eight years in Washington D.C. So some people say that that explains me moving to the other side of the planet. But um, we won't go into that in this, <laughs> this episode. That's another episode for perhaps a different podcast. We. So I'd always been fascinated with Africa from the time I was a very small child, and South Africa in. Particular, I don't even know how as a four-year-old I understood. You know that there was a place called South Africa, and many adults today still don't understand that South Africa is a country in sub-Saharan Africa. So it was a lifelong interest, passion, obsession—somewhere in there,
1: or in your DNA.
0: Yeah, or in my DNA. Yeah, and and somewhere in my cellular memory and. I, to the point that I asked when I was a very young child for someone to teach me a Zulu because I didn't know how to read Zulu yet. I had learned to read English very young. So clearly there was something there, but I was told it was ridiculous. I was told it was crazy, you know, and, and eventually I put it all away and just carried on trying to build a good life, the American dream, which I did to a large extent in many people's estimation. And it wasn't for me. It just wasn't. So eventually, I was in a long term marriage that was not particularly a great thing for either one of us, I think. And I took a a trip by myself the first time for a month and came to South Africa to go walk about to think and decide what I wanted to do. We were very companionable. There was nothing horrible going on, you know, but it just, I knew, Ubizo means a calling, the calling. So I knew I was called here. And I came for a month, I knew by the second day that it was not a vacation, (laughs) that there was far more going on. I had never felt so so at home anywhere. And I traveled a lot. And there were places that I really connected to before deeply, but this was something else. And then um, went back to the States and a month later came back and have stayed. And that was over six years ago now.
1: Now you say you knew that there was more going on and other than it feeling... Like home, what else do you mean by that? And you, and when I say home, there's an element of like familiarity that I'm making up. Tell me more. Yes,
0: exactly. Um, you know, in Goldilocks terms, the you know the just right mm-hmm. kind of chair. I had never felt that I belonged. That's sort of been one of my things I've been working on in this lifetime. I certainly was not wanted nor particularly loved in my family of origin, although by my extended family I was and still am. I tried very hard to fit myself into a box and to be normal and to create a good family because I never felt I'd have that as an adult, perhaps too hard or too long. I'm not sure. And although it all worked out fine in the end. And I'd never felt at Ease anywhere. I'd never felt I connect easily. I'm a chameleon. I, I travel easily. I have no trouble with that. And there were certain places, south of Spain, Scotland, Ireland, that I really, really felt strongly that I would thrive there, that I would do well there. But when I came here, I was standing on these huge rocks on the Western Cape at dawn, watching woolly neck storks as the sun came up over these mountains. And the connection for my feet into the earth here was just so solid, so strong, so magnetic. The people welcomed me. In fact, when I ended up getting to Kuzunlu Natal, the people here saw me, first of all, as Sangoma, which is a healer here. I know it's never a title that I would have claimed that was given to me over and over. They, The language came easily to me. The clicks came easily. It was just like a sliding back in. Mm just sort of a mm, ease. The way I've always seen friends of mine, if I went home with friends for holidays and things, and they just sort of slid into being home, I never had that in the home I grew up in. And it felt like that.
1: Say more about they saw you as a healer. Like what, how did that, what did that look like? How, like, give me an example of like, when people would reflect that to you and like, when did that start making sense to you?
0: Making sense to me, I'm not sure. When, when, when did I accept that it was true? That took some time. But it happened pretty immediately. When I when I first came here, I was in Joburg then the Western Cape, I traveled around quite a bit. And I met a few Zulu people along the way who I particularly connected with. The Zulu tribe is the primary tribe here in KwaZulu-Natal. And while I did connect with other tribes, there was something different about that. And and they saw me, you know, and they all told me, you know, people say they're going to come back, people say they're going to move here, but you, you could do that. That was said to me probably seven or eight times in that month. When I landed in KwaZulu-Natal the last week, we spent up at a beautiful reserve owned by and beyond called Pinda. And we were staying in a in a, a home, I was staying with friends. So it was just us. And we had the same staff every day, the same guide, the same tracker, all of that, we were all together for a week. And from the first night, our tracker, and I spent four hours just talking about what I had seen about the people, the questions I had. And he was fascinated that while I love the animals, and I still do, that my primary connection was with the people. And it's been said and said again since that that's not usually the way it happens. You know that my connection was to them. We did things like he was and the staff there were the first. No, there there was someone I met earlier in Durban uh, who's a sangoma who took me into her altar area and and was showing me things in a way that she typically doesn't. And then with them, they, they just we're very, as only Zulu can, people can be very matter of fact, like this is who you are, mm-hmm. honey. Mm-hmm. Get used to it. Cause this is who you are. You're one of us. You may be in a Mungu, a white person, but your heart, you know, your heart is with us. And we did ceremony in the sand forest. We, the brought his music, which, you know, typically he would bring his musical group for some, so for some special guest. And I played drums that night and got to know everyone. And it just, Felt it all felt so right, yeah. You know, yeah, it was so easy. And the last day we were there, I was just in tears 4 30 in the morning, and he found me outside because I had to go, I had a few more days somewhere else. And you know, and he said to me, Look, you everyone says they're going to come back, some people say they want to live here, but you, you will, you know. And I was like, I can't come back for you know, six or seven months. No, no, you'll be back sooner. And he was right. It was back a month later.
1: So, here you had this life back in the US. You were married. You had children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you went on this walkabout, you had no idea when you embarked on this journey that this would eventually become your home or even a month later, right? Not a clue. And so, What in the world had to transpire for you? Because I imagine it was one thing to be there and to have the experience, but then to leave it, come back. Like, I'm just kind of so curious about what that process was like in those four weeks time that you had to go through in order to, like, speak your truth, figure out what you were going to do and then go back. And just for some more context, how old were your children? Like where in your your kind of marriage were you? How many years in? Like tell us more.
0: So, and I didn't just to preface all this. I didn't know when I came back in January that I would stay. I knew that it was the beginning of a shift in life, but I thought because you get a 3-month visa here, I thought I might take 3 months here, 3 months in the states, you know, build a foundation do something back and forth. So I really thought, I, I knew that life was changing. And I had known for years that ch- big change was coming. I had known, and I'd just been somewhat patiently waiting. So my daughter was in her last year of varsity, at, uh, university college. Then my husband had an extremely demanding job and and it was very focused always, always. Our entire marriage had been extremely focused on his work. I had been wanting to go to South Africa forever and he just could never find the time. So uh, I went on my own. So when I came back from that first trip, And it was the day before Thanksgiving. So my in-laws were there. My daughter had a friend, all that. And all I could do was talk about South Africa or cry. First of all, I didn't want to get on the plane. Now, I was a very seasoned traveler. So this is just strange. I didn't want to get on the plane. I found myself like, how do people stow away? Maybe I can just get a return ticket and just go straight back. You know, like crazy, crazy things going through my head. And I just sort of tried to hold myself close on that trip back because I would never not wanted to go home. I, I'm I'm a, my birthday's in July, I'm a Cancerian, you know, home is a big thing for me. And it wasn't anything against my family, but I had been living a life that I thought was supposed to make me happy. I was a good wife, a good mother, you know, all of those things. And I had put them first, always, and had put myself last. I didn't do anything for myself until I was about 45. I was fifty-four at this stage. I had work that I loved, I had friends that I loved, I had, you know, I gave up a lot to come here. But when I so I came back at Thanksgiving, for a couple days I just, you know, no one my family did not seem very interested in hearing much about it. So I chatted with friends a lot, I looked at my photos, I cried. <laughs> My husband came in and brought a little yellow sticky note that gave me two dates. This was the end of November, gave me two weeks in July that he said, See, we can go. We can go back in July. We'll go together and you can show me all these places. And it was, and I started crying again because it was too far away. It was for too short a time. And he, he, I think he sensed that. He said, You can stay longer, but, you know, I can just do two weeks. And he wouldn't have been my choice of traveling companion. And it hit me really hard Mm. because. His value system is one that he wouldn't understand the connection I had. I spent all my time, say, at Pindo with the staff, all my free time chatting and talking with them. And that's not something that he would be comfortable with at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just realized, as I had been realizing for a few years before that, I had asked for a divorce three years before I left. So that was the decision I was trying to make. It was just one of those forks in the road where... As soon as I got out of the box I was in, which I put myself in, you know, I built that box, meaning, well. <laughs> and once I was out, I didn't fit back in it mm-hmm. when I came back. I mm-hmm. just didn't. Mm-hmm. So we did some talking. I we did I had a lot of soul searching. He basically just said one morning, You're going back, aren't you? And I said, Yeah. I just, it just came out. And I said, yeah. So we set it up so that I, the first three months I had paid volunteers to do, it was not a four-star or five-star tour the way my first one had been. It was living in volunteer housing and a, and a whole different, getting to know geckos and spiders and scorpions very well. And, and I was happy as a clam. You know, I was happy as a clam with that. We thought that I would probably come back. He thought that he would support whatever charitable work I did there. And, you know, none of that turned out to be true went completely differently but only really after i had been back for a month or so is when we began to see that yeah i couldn't leave again i just couldn't
1: so what i'm hearing too is you had a soul like a there's a there's a soul contract with this place yes and that it like i'm making up that it really it awakened you at a spiritual level in such a way that it was like you were resonating so much and like almost like like I'm getting this imagery of a woman who was like starving for her for like the foods from her culture, from her
0: mm-hmm.
1: place. Right. It's it's like those traditional ways in which we right. hunger for the for the foods from our homeland and yet
0: you can't find them where you are, right?
1: It seemed so strange that this was revealed as your homeland and like such a st- such a strange revelation, right, to have as you were kind of like just unpacking it all. And so I know we can take this conversation in a number of different directions, but what I really want to ask you is like you write this beautiful book and why why did you want to write it? What what became like critically important for you to tell the story of?
0: So the early chapters about my childhood I wrote as a part of a different book while I was still in the States before 2015. I think I finished it in 2014. And that that was to help me process it. I'd been through a lot of therapy and all of that. And one of the things in therapy that really helped me to process trauma is to write it out and so i did and the book was just really really strong and and would have been triggering for a number of people and i just wasn't sure you know what to do with it and i wasn't sure about the purpose of it other than helping me so that was done then I, I've i always been big into journaling. So I had journaled and more and more here, I just used Instagram as sort of a record. You know, when I was writing the book, I went back and looked at my Instagram entries and that really helped me to re- get kind of order and where it was and all, when I met the right people and all of that. The reason I, I wrote it during COVID, the bulk of it, uh, really all of it as it exists now. And, The reason I wrote it is this, Monica. It's a time in our civilization when the unexpected is happening continually. Mm -hmm. Just when we think, you know, we can breathe again, then something else happens, another variant, another, you know, crisis in the world. And what we prepared for corporately, what we thought we, you know, we thought we had a plan. Right. And we we go to college or we train and we've got this whole plan and, you know, and all of it, and just like investments now, you know, the financial planning is, is uh, that's changed completely. The lay of the land is really changing. And I wanted to let people know that everything can change and it can work out better than you ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Because, look, there's a lot of loss in that book, too. There's been a lot of loss in my life and a lot of lessons learned. I didn't want to write a coaching book. I didn't want to write a mindfulness-based book. I could have, either way. What I wanted to write, because I believe that human beings learn best from story. That's why I think you probably, I hope, part of why you do what you do. I really think that human beings learn best from story. And when I was talking with people, American and, and European friends who come here to visit and telling them I'm thinking about writing a book about all a lot of people said you should write a book. But when we talked about it on a real level, I said, well, what would that book look like to you? What, you know, they like, just write the stories that you tell us around the fire. And when we're driving forever to get from one point to another here, just the way you tell us stories, just tell those stories. And so that's what I did.
1: What? You know, you talk, too, about the fact that you didn't, you didn't realize that part of your childhood and, you know, that the challenges that you faced as a child were going to end up being part of this book. So what was it that got revealed to you about the connection between your childhood and what you faced in your childhood and what you discovered about this home in South Africa?
0: Well, part of it was just simply that home, you know, that I always grew up feeling I didn't belong and then found that I do belong in not even within South Africa. My life is highly unusual. My entire family is Zulu. My husband is, you know, like I live a fairly traditional Zulu life. I practice traditional African spirituality. I teach black African people who were raised Christian and now want to connect with their ancestors. I teach them traditional practices and how to connect with their ancestors. So I have an unusual life even here. Part of it is trauma. So I was diagnosed with PTSD back before people, you know, before it was a catchphrase and, and I've been through obviously a lot of trauma and I've worked with trauma for a very long time uh, with others. This is, This book, I hope, shows so many of us, we become our trauma, my PTSD, my cancer, my Lyme disease, my all of those things. And I've had I've had cancer three times. I had Lyme undiagnosed and untreated for 20-something years. You know, I've been sick as a dog, which is also part of a traditional healer's journey here. So and yet, and people told me I would be in a wheelchair, they told me I would die, they told me, you know, all sorts of things having to do with those diagnoses and with the things that happened to me what my the expectations for me would be and i made a choice a long time ago that i wasn't going to let those expectations define me and that i was not and this was a very difficult one for a, a child who was raised in the conditions that i was raised in for that adult to do but i decided that i was not going to worry what about what other people thought and I was raised to put that front and center. So, that was a big swing. It took a long time. Mm-hmm. And those are the things I think that I can share that are, are universal. I've lived it. you know. I studied with Bessel van der Kolk for um, a long uh, workshop the summer before I came here. And we spent a lot of time together, He um, and his wife and I, and a friend of mine. And he said to me, because I was thinking about becoming a psychotherapist, he said, Oh, God, no. Please don't ever go to school because you have the understanding from the inside out, and that is irreplaceable. And truly, a lot of my clients, when I was in the states, came from psychiatrists and psychologists where the standard treatment wasn't working. And you know, I kind of went in the back door. And I think that's kind of the point of the book too. Is I've traveled these roads, I know them. You know, come with me. I know that you've been on some of these same roads. Let let me show you how I got off that path and found a different. Mm,
1: yeah. Yes. I hope I've achieved that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and it's it continually is revealed, isn't it? I mean, it's never done and it's you know, that I think you and I in our some of our conversations previously, I think I had a really shared with you that like the revelation project for me is is this continual practice of you know, being in a state of allowing and in a state of exploring and discovering and revealing and unbecoming from everything that we were either colonized to believe or taught to believe, or which is basically the same thing, right? I mean, when we really look at the institutions that we've been brought through, we've been conditioned out of our instincts we've been conditioned out of our in- intuition we've been conditioned out of our i mean i can use all the in words because we've been taught not to mm-hmm. trust our our inner being our spiritual being we've we've instead been taught that our validation or authority is out there somewhere, and that, and oftentimes we give our power away over time. And it's a little bit like that metaphor of boiling a frog in water, but doing so starting from a very room temperature, such that the frog doesn't even know to jump out of the pot and gets boiled alive. Besser van, van der Kolk mm-hmm. wrote The Body Keeps the Score correct? Yes. I remember an interview with he and Krista Tippett, and I remember a definition of trauma being brought up that just made so much sense to me. And I think think it was Krista that reflected it back to him after reading his book that trauma was not being allowed to know what you know or feel what you feel. And that was very much my experience growing up. And I think I think that's true for so many of us who have been, who have had to kind of go through this process of unbecoming is that we we realize that there's everyday trauma and then there's kind of capital T trauma, some of the traumas that we've experienced, mm-hmm. you know, either through abuse or suffering or, you know, some kind of extreme treatment. But more and more, I think as you had kind of pointed to, we're in these extraordinary times now, where change is a constant, where no longer is kind of the status quo, keeping us in this illusion of safety. And it really is an illusion and always has been. And so, you know, there's so much wisdom in what you're saying. And there's also so much wisdom in each of us that is our unique, you know, revelation project to unpack and explore. And I, I often, you know, think that I used to say, like, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And yet, and I I say that because of what I went through. And yet, the truth is, I wish it for everyone, because It's like I went through such a a struggle, such a hard time coming to this wall where I had to kind of like, everything that wasn't true or serving me or aligned with who I truly was had to fall apart. And I had to be stripped bare to the point where that ego death is so painful and who you think you are. Underneath all of that is such this, This magical forest. I'll put it in your terms, right? It's like that we metaphorically get to live in each day if we're willing to go there,
0: and and to stay there. I think we, well, two things. Trauma for me, you know, that definition I definitely concur with. But I've come to see that trauma is sort of like, you know, if you break your fingernail, right. And you don't file it. If you just leave it, you're going to hurt yourself with it. You're going to scratch yourself in the middle of the night or whatever, right? It can be very sharp. So trauma is like that file. You know, trauma is what allows us to move forward and to evolve. Does that make sense? You know, it's the roughening or those rock tumblers we used to have when we were kids. You know, it was so loud and it sounded horrible. And the whole idea of taking these pretty rocks, but then look what came out. But there's also the, what I think gets talked about less is what we have to give up. So I said, you know, people identify with my cancer, my trauma, my bipolar, my whatever. In order to move forward. Not only do you need to do the work and you know all that that you you know the things that we wouldn't wish on our worst worst enemies, but maybe the people we love we would. <laughs> and yet, there's this also this this side piece of letting go. I think we talked about that analogy that I often use is I grew up in the ocean, and you see it here too. Watching kids collect shells on the beach, and they make a little pocket with their T-shirt, and they put all the shells and the rocks in there, and they're happy, 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 and they find everything. And we go through life like that. We collect things that just, you know, are great. You know, they're fine. They're, oh, this is a pretty one. Fine. That's a good one. Okay. That one, that one is whole. Maybe it's not a color we like, but it's whole. So we'll put it in there. And then when their little pouch is full and they're looking for mom or dad or the car, All of a sudden, the holy grail of shells, this is that inner knowing, the thing that really just blows their minds and is what they didn't know they wanted, but it's right there in front of them. It's the most beautiful thing, is right in front of their feet, but their pouch is so full that in order to reach it, they would have to spill out as they bend over. Some of what they have would spill out. There's no way to get to it without losing some of what they've accumulated along the way. And I think that's a point that's less talked about mm-hmm. and that I tried to write as much as I could about. There are a lot of wonderful things that I had to give up in order to find what was truly mine and what truly was there for me. I don't know anyone who has really landed at a place in life where they feel very fulfilled and very themselves. And like they're following their inner voice, it would be as the calling who hasn't gone through a great deal of loss? I don't think it's negotiable.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But it's less talked
1: about. It's true. It is.
0: We want the world to change, but we don't want to go through change. You know. So, on a global scale, all the changes we're going through, everyone knows everything needed to change, but oh my god, everything's
1: changing. What's wrong? <laughs> right. Right. And I, you know, and I often think there's there's so much. There's so much kind of like fear stoking, like the media machine is, is constantly kind of
0: oh
1: oh just stoking that fear of machine. I, there's no other better term for it. It's like an endless engine. And I just think it's so interesting because there's, and I'm gonna say this without needing to be responsible for how people hear it. But what I'm going to say about that is that that is by design that, you know, we tend to become what we consume on a daily basis. And if we're being fed a steady diet of fear, and we're not ever kind of critically questioning the nutrition that we are trying to metabolize each day and it ends up making us feel diseased. Mm-hmm. then eventually, oh, and I look at disease, dis-ease as a separation mm-hmm. from our inner knowing, and that is exactly what the exactly. system wants to keep us from knowing, is our inner knowing. Because when our inner knowing starts to lead us home, to who we really are, we can no longer deny it, nor are we confused or fooled into separating from our true self ever again. And a lot of people have never had that feeling of knowing who they truly are. And there's any number of reasons for that. And It stops, though, being a good excuse anymore when we are in so much pain and suffering. like It becomes like
0: Mm
1: -hmm. a a louder and louder cry from our body to get still, to get quiet. And I do believe that if we don't make the time for our wellness, we will be forced to make time for our illness. But either way,
0: that was certainly my case for mm-hmm. a long time. Same. Yeah, that was same. certainly my. It, it took over. Yeah. and that's not an unusual story for people who you know are now considered healers of one kind or another.
1: Yes. Yes, indeed.
0: Um, or light workers. You know, it's as you said. It's the frog in the water. People don't even realize they're in the water. Never mind the pot. Never mind that the water is getting warmer, and it is by design. I mean, this is probably another conversation, but you know, colonization, Um, you know, if we don't want to talk about Africa, look at the Viking civilization. And, you know, the the Christians eventually overcame, you know, an incredibly sophisticated, incredibly humane, in in many ways, civilization. So, I mean, it's just, most structures in this world of that sort are all about control and then therefore the fear mongering in that big engine. It's not just starting now. I mean, this is oh, this yeah. has gone on forever. And it's always been, you know, in particular, obviously of interest to me are the ways that it's affected women and the way that it's affected black African people. The toll that colonization has taken here, not just on the Black the tribal people, but on the white people as well, is stunning and will take a long time, you know, while it's nice that apartheid's over, it will take a long, long time to correct, to, for people to self-correct. Those, those roots run deep, and it takes a concerted, it takes a great deal of courage, it takes a great deal of strength, it takes a great deal of devotion, really, to yourself and to what you'd like to see in the world in order to move out of that. And I don't believe that process will, will ever end. Right. So, that's the light and the shadow.
1: That's right and it's and it's part of I think all of our human and spiritual work in that kind of evolution of consciousness you know and and waking up right to Exactly. to the truth of who we are as as I say.
0: We just keep walking forward.
1: Yeah. And you know I'm curious, what are the main differences like that you see those stark real differences between life in the States and in South Africa in, in terms of like comfort, discomfort, any, anything else you want to mm-hmm. kind of point out that as as real differences that you see?
0: Well, we're coming into summer now. So, the, you know, the being upside down season-wise and realizing from this point of view now how Northern Hemisphere-centric the world is, how everything works that way. Um, I don't think I'll ever get used to warm Christmas. <laughs> that is just, um, and to hear Christmas music in the stores and see, you know, frosted wind it's very strange. But overall, one of the if I had to sum up one thing that I've really seen, and I saw quite early on, is how much, for you know my experiences in the United States, I think it probably carries maybe less so to Europe, but somewhat for for North America. How much the emphasis is on being comfortable mm-hmm. on comfort, you know, it's the you know the thing that i grew up seeing is that people work really 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 hard and pinch pennies and save and save and save to buy a house in florida so that they can and maybe a boat so that they can spend their retirement in warm sunny weather near the ocean you know for example rather than enjoying those days because we never know we don't know if we're going to get to retirement age we don't know what's going to happen but this self deprivation To get to a certain goal and to be comfortable also you know the houses are built much more tightly central heating and air you know all of those creature comforts it's all about being comfortable the cars you know just all of that things here are not comfortable a lot of the time uh, no matter how nice a home you have i mean i don't you know i'm not suffering um, we live, we have a very nice house, you know, all of that. Thank you, conversion rate and dollars. And yet I went into our, our loo, our, our guest bathroom um, just before we got on. And there are, there are a row, there's <laughs> a collection of about six different kinds of spiders, up. you know, just the, which is nothing, you know, there, that we open the cupboard to, to get something. And there are these, these I call them armored crickets. They're crickets that literally look like they're wearing bronze armor, <laughs> strongest looking crickets and, big. and it's just staring out at me, you know, those kinds of things. For example, you don't, we, we have things like load shedding. So there's only one power company that in the whole of South Africa that runs all the power, there's no competition. There is, I think I'm letting any secret out of the bag, serious amount of corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there are times when we're on a schedule where people just don't have power. Yeah. We, it's just not there. We go the first two years when I was here on the drought, we often, often didn't have water, but sometimes we still don't have water. Those basic services are not guaranteed. The, the kinds of levels of comfort that there are in America are not guaranteed here. And yet, one of the most commonly used sayings in South Africa is, we'll make a plan. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. We don't have any water. Do you have rainwater? Okay. You've got rainwater. Who's got you know something we can put it in? Where are the buckets? It's just a common thing here, and everyone pulls together, and that is a beautiful, beautiful thing—the way people pull together to just get through whatever it is. I don't, I find that since that kind of community to be uh, really you know, and and it goes people who might argue with each other about a lot of things on most days will reach across to each other in those kinds of situations when we had that looting recently here you know people it was amazing how people gather together to help each other
1: yeah well and i'm i'm imagining too that beautiful vision that you shared with us about the the full t-shirt of shells right and
0: Mm -hmm.
1: having the shell right before you and so there's some Mm -hmm. of what you gave up is like this comfort and yet what i'm also hearing is that your needs are being served at such a deeper different level than what comfort provided because i often say that comfort is killing Mm us you know Mm -hmm. like that that like comfort is such an interesting thing it can thing to put as as front and center because like the comfort zone is that place that i often say that like it's it's lovely but you don't want to dwell there like it's it's kind of like you want to yes you can visit <laughs> yeah you visit visit the comfortable places but don't dwell there because it doesn't it doesn't it's not that it doesn't have enough grit to make the pearl, as you had kind of talked about earlier.
0: Right. The final thing. It's not there. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I love that. So so talk to us a little bit in our final, you know, minutes here. You there's there's a big connection for you and for me, but I'll say for you, because it's something that you focus on between creativity and spirituality and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about that sure
0: it's one of the things that is very obvious to me that i i don't i really can't comprehend why it's not more fully understood you're getting rolling thunder coming across the hills now
1: perfect based on our card that we pulled
0: the perfect the storm Uh, yeah exactly so for me, I, I believe that creativity, so in our bodies, we have spinal fluid, right? There's a rhythm between our cranium and our sacrum that you know, keeps everything flowing. And I think creativity is that kind of, that sort of fluidity in life. If you look at even in the American sense, you know, an old village, there would be the person in that village who was really good with herbs, the person in the village who was really good at making bread. Um, the person who painted houses or built stone walls, you know, beautifully. And we have with, you know, the industrial age and all of that, when, as we've sped things up to an inhuman, inhumane pace. And in doing that, we've cut out creativity, just like we've cut out art programs out of schools, right? To music and all of that. When we bring creativity back into our life, everything flows more easily, more fully. When you get someone, for example, so I I do sort of an art therapy, kind of an expressive arts practice with people. When you get someone who can't really speak in therapy or can't speak of what's going on, but you get them playing with paint, you'd be amazed what comes out. It's just a vehicle. It's a way to allow all that to flow. And I wonder you know, really what we have robbed ourselves of in the world by f- making creativity sort of for dessert, making mm-hmm. it the extra thing, not part of our daily lives as it was for so long. You know, standing and chopping vegetables versus worrying them in a food processor, Although well, there's a time and a place for that, gives you time. It's meditative. It gives you time to slow down and catch up with yourself just like, as we were saying earlier, you know, uh, about people being contained, people being asked to, to act a certain way and, you know, controlled, what does that kind of control rob the world of? What does, by trying to make everyone believe in one kind of spirituality, one kind of religion, and making that part of everyone's lives, whether they subscribe to that particular belief or not, what does that rob people of when we take away people's right and freedom to choose how to believe, when we make one way wrong and one way right, or many ways wrong and one way right? What are we doing to ourselves?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder about that
1: a lot. I do too, and especially... You know, we see this kind of playing out right now. I mean, we see it all the time, But I'll just say right now, in specific, I see it a lot as it relates to kind of, you know, everything being. It's like it's it's like somehow vaccines, right, with this whole like new religion is mm-hmm. like the latest mm-hmm. kind of example de jour. it's It's been fascinating to me. and when you talk about the fact that we have taken creativity or even arts and music and things out of our schools, you know, it's, it's like, it's really stunted our ability to question, to be in the questions, to, to.
0: Yes. The uncertain, there's no, like an equation. There's an answer to the equation, right? Yeah. There's an equation there's an answer. But when you stand in front of a canvas or you pick up a clarinet or a or, uh, cooking class, even, you know, you, you give everyone the same recipe, you're not going to get all the same product, please, hopefully. Right. And that's what expands our world as well as our own souls. That is the place where our souls sing with our humanity. When we take that away, we are taking our, away our humanity. We are taking away our soul level, you know, our spirits. And I don't believe that the human race was designed to live that way.
1: Yeah, what's coming up for me is like a viewfinder. Remember those viewfinders when we were kids? Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, it's like taking away the little paper thing that you put the inside, disc. you know, and like <laughs> yeah. look through another yeah. perspective. Because like, I, I want to go back to this whole idea, right? like this idea of like vaccines are for everybody. It's like, that's one perspective. And it's like, there's this other perspective that talks about natural immunity. There's this other perspective that talks about a whole different way to interpret and to care for oneself through nutrition and spiritual practices. And right, like there's so many perspectives on that viewfinder,
0: yeah, even homeopathy and you know other other types of medicine.
1: Absolutely. You
0: know, that, yeah, that have been around for how for millennia.
1: For millennia. Yeah. So it's it's again it's like and what what is also really fascinating for me is to kind of see this continually kind of like play out. It's like oh my gosh, are we ever going to learn? <laughs> you know, like that. And I also know. That something deeper is happening and, and like, all of this is happening for us in this way that it's, like, creating that discomfort, that edge, that grit for us to really awaken against or to, you know, to refine.
0: And it can't happen without that.
1: It cannot happen without that.
0: It cannot happen.
1: It's so, it's, these times are so, so revelatory. But I... I wondered if if you would just grace us with a passage, maybe a favorite passage from your beautiful book for our listeners, and perhaps we can kind of end with not only that, but
0: yeah, I think this is a, I think this is a good one. This is from chapter twenty seven so towards the end of the book. In the end. After all of these bumpy, curvy, dusty roads I've traveled over the last several years, and before that, too, what have I learned? That a place can call to you and bring you a great distance only to challenge you mentally, physically, and spiritually in ways well beyond your imagination, all while whispering so strongly that this is home. That someone, a grown man, a mostly grown person who calls you mama, or anyone really, can show up in your life and become so close to you that you forget to guard your heart and then leave you without explanation, unclear as to their motives and whether there was truth in any part of the relationship. That the innate gifts you have will bring you just as much challenge as they will bring you joy, often much more, yet that they truly do define you and infiltrate whatever you choose to do with your days, whether you acknowledge them or not. Yes, to all of that, and then some. And yet they've taught me too that I am far, far stronger than I know or will admit to knowing. That while I often feel like that little girl who was told she'd die alone and broke, there is and always has been a spectacularly powerful and wise old woman within me too. She has brought me through experiences that many could not survive and allowed me to tell the tales, to inspire others to stay and not define themselves by the external events inflicted on them, to tell the stories and yet not become limited by them. She has allowed me to witness the journeys of brave souls and to welcome new ones to the world, to help many find their own inner resources and others to grow in what can only be considered hostile conditions. I like to think that she's been with me as I've written this book, The Good, The Ugly, The Amazing, and The Crazy Making. Cajoling me to share openly and deeply from my heart, when really it would be far easier to erect very, very thick walls around all of my internal world, put on a very good disguise and walk around pretending to be that elusive thing called normal.
1: <laughs> I love that. That elusive thing called normal. There's
0: a podcast title.
1: Amen. Right? <laughs> oh my God. That's awesome. I love that. And so, Krista, you know what? Haven't I asked today that you might have liked me to ask or that you want to end with to our listeners?
0: There's a fairly commonly used saying that social media outlets are like comparing your everyday life to someone else's highlight reel. I think that many of us set our expectations for ourselves based. On what we see about others. And there's no way to know, because we all view things with our own lens, you know, how true that is. People tend to put me on a bit of a pedestal sometimes in terms of, you know, look what she's achieved, look what she's done, look at, you know, all of that. And I have had an extraordinary life. I'm grateful for every bit of it. I am very grateful at 62 not to have a life that doesn't resemble anything that I thought sixty would bring, and yet and and this goes even across to like racial things and things like that. you know here it's very common to want kind of an umlungu life and that sort of thing and to to think it's much better. but you know we all bleed the same blood, no matter what others label us as. I wish that people could turn their lens on themselves and see the incredibly exquisite organism they are and stop looking at what they aren't that that is one of my greatest wishes right now and what i'm really focused on in this next 6 months of taking some time to to evolve the next part of my work because that's the end goal is to hold up a mirror for people and allow them to see that who they are is truly extraordinary yes it's not you know all the messaging you're enough you're this you're worthy you know but beyond that you're exquisite mm. in so many ways we all are this yeah. planet is how do we help people put their gaze and their intention there versus on everything that isn't
1: mm. I'm just really breathing that in because like yes to all of that, I I often say, like you know, we're each our own revelation, right? It's like you are a revelation. Yes, we are. Yes, exactly. Yes, and
0: that's I love the word revelation, and that's exactly what it means to me.
1: Yeah, like the de- like the decolonized version of it, right? Is is this yes yes is, is this yes. very kind of like expansive word that has so many incredible meanings.
0: Sometimes when I used to be on an airplane, I would sit there and think, I am sitting with a bunch of other souls in a metal tube flying through the sky. Yeah. Like, how extraordinary is this, really? Yes. And that's everything about life is extraordinary if we allow it to be, if we let it be.
1: Right. I I love the phrase to be properly astonished, right, (laughs) by by these.
0: that the Mary Oliver poem, you know, I want to be a bride.
1: Yeah, Mm. a a bride of amazement. Yes, indeed. Yes. So, I'll be sure, Krista, to put all of your links in the show notes. Is there a particular place that you would like for our listeners to visit you and learn more about you?
0: I think... You know, my website is thisbeinghuman.co.za, but much more current is our, and I know you'll put the links up, are my Facebook and Instagram feeds. There is one that I don't think you have, and it's called just at This Being Human, or there's a page on Facebook, This Being Human. And that's where I share just photos of mine and short quotes, poems that inspire me
1: awesome i'll be sure to put that in the links as well so i just so krista i just want to thank you thank you so much for being you know who you are thank you for your work in the world for our listeners krista's book is abizo a story of coming home and until next time more to be revealed We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening, and as always, more to be revealed.